Did you bring a Bible tonight? Good, good, good. You'll need it. Now, if you didn't bring one, you can look at the screen. But I encourage you next time, bring a Bible. If you don't have one, please let us know. We'd like to help you get one. Um, because it's so good to have a Bible of your own that you can get into, that you can uh, open and uncover and discover what God has for you, and that you don't have to just take our word for it. You don't just have to say, oh, that's what they said, but who knows what it really means. Uh, I want you to go home and check out what you've read. Reread it. Read, the t read what came before it, what came after it, and, and let it change you. Let it study you as you study it, and I believe you'll be changed by it. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians and we find ourselves halfway through the third chapter. If you remember last week, the Apostle Paul said, we don't need to come up with fancy letters of commendation. We don't need somebody to write us a, a nice uh, reference letter so that you'll, you'll accept us so that we can, uh, you know, seem bigger in your eyes. He said, you're our letter. You're our letter. And you're read and known by everyone. That's a big deal. We talked last week about the fact that, <laughs> thank God, it's good to be known. It's good to be read by all men. You don't need to be ashamed of that. You should know that if the gospel is real, if it is what we say it is, that you've got, you've got some fruit coming out of your life. You've got light coming out of you. And Jesus said there's no, it's silly for you to put a light and put it under a, a, a basket or a bushel. He says put it up on a lampstand so that the light gives light to all the people in the house. It gives light to everyone around you. In the same sense, we understand that it's good to know that God put something in us that's worth reading. He wrote something on your heart that's worth reading, and you should be known and read by all men. A letter written by God, written, written by the Spirit, not with ink, but by the Spirit of God on hearts. And so that's, that's where we left off. And we're going to pick up in chapter 3 and verse 6. Or let's start in verse 5 so that the thought can go together. Chapter 3, verse 5 says, Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. That's big, isn't it? Not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from us, but our adequacy is from God. That's a big statement. We're going to hang on to that. He says, Who also made us adequate, as servants of a new covenant, not, the, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. He's talking about two different covenants here. We know in our Bible, you've got an Old Testament and a New Testament, right? You ever wonder why they were called testaments? Testament's not another word for chapter. Testament's not another word for section. A testament is a covenant. It's a, it's a deal. That's why somebody says, this is my last will and testament. This is something they've written down. They've signed it. It is legally binding. The Old Testament was a covenant, was, was based around a covenant that God made with his chosen people. And the reason he made that covenant was that someday there'd be a redeemer coming through that line, through that nation. He made that covenant first with Abraham. Then he gave a, a covenant and the law through Moses. And all of these things were leading up to the day when Jesus would come and would fulfill that covenant and usher in a new covenant. This is a good thing. The new covenant in the book of Hebrews, it says that this is a new and better covenant, new and better treaty, new and better deal based on better promises. 
How many of you have, have spent some time reading the book of Hebrews before? We're not reading it tonight, but you spent some good time. Don't worry. I think some people worry about raising their hand because they think there's going to be a quiz. I'm just going to test your knowledge. No, I'm just going to take your word for it. But in the book of Hebrews, there's a lot of comparisons. It starts out comparing the ministry of angels with the ministry of Jesus. And it says, you know, angels are great. Angels are swell. But how much better is Jesus? To which one of the angels did God ever say, this is my son? Did, to which one of the angels did he say, you're my begotten son? To which of the angels did this? He says, and then he says, he says he doesn't come to the aid of angels. He comes to those who are heirs of Abraham through faith. And so then he goes on and he says, we had a good covenant. It was a good deal. But how much better is the new covenant? It's new. It's better. It's based on better promises. He said, we had good high priests. We had a good priesthood. We had a good system. But how much better and perfect is the system now? See, we're going from the good to the perfect. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that there was a flaw with the old covenant. And the flaw was not with God. It was with us. You see, the thing about the old covenant is it was based on if you do this, this is the outcome. If you do this, this is the outcome. And God's side of the covenant was steady, but a lot of it depended on you. If you have ever read through the, the law that was given through Moses, it was all dependent on what they did. Now, God kept up his end of the deal, but whether you were blessed or cursed depended on what you did. The covenant rested on your obedience. And in theory, that's a good idea. But we know that none of us could really meet that standard. The Bible says in the book of Romans that the law was given to show us sin, to teach us what sin was. The law was given to show us God's standard and show us that we couldn't meet it. We needed that, didn't we? Some, I mean, for any of us that think we met that standard, how many of you know the, the verse, and we, we quote it a lot? I mean, as, as believers, you hear it all the time. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You've heard this verse? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, I have never heard any Christian quote that and be sad at the same time. Have you? All of sin and come short of the glory of God. I hate that. You know that you don't go and throw a, tamper, a temper tantrum, a tamper tantrum, I don't know what that is. But you don't go and throw a temper tantrum. You don't go and get depressed about it. Usually when we say all of sin and come short of the glory of God, we're leading up to something pretty happy. Why can we be so happy about that? How can we be so happy about a verse like that that says we all came short of God's glory? Because we know what comes after it. We know what the Bible teaches us, that though we fell short, that Jesus came and he met the mark. And he didn't just meet the mark for him, he met the mark for us. Thank God. That's why we're never sad when we say it. Some of my friends like to celebrate Good Friday in a dramatic way, and I, I can appreciate that. They like to... To, to be solemn as people were on Good Friday and be, you know, kind of channel what the disciples might have felt as Jesus was in the ground. And, and I understand that, but I have, a, I have trouble um, keeping a straight face because I know what happened afterward. You know, and, and I do think it's good to meditate on, on the sacrifice that Jesus did. That's a big deal. I don't take that lightly, nor should we. And I think we should meditate on that. And I think we should. There is some gravity to that. There is some seriousness to that. But, but at the edge of our, our, our you know, mouths, there's always that little grin that's coming up because we know that Jesus didn't stay in the ground. So that's why it's Good Friday. I remember I was teaching children's ministry 
and uh, teaching the children downstairs. And it was that the week, it was that holy week leading up to Resurrection Sunday. It was the week before, in fact. And we were showing them uh, and demonstrating what Jesus did for us on Good Friday. We were showing them how Jesus died on the cross and how he was whipped and he was beaten. When I say we were showing it, we were showing it in a very PG way. Not really actually, you know, like showing them the passion of the Christ or anything. We were, you know, we tamed it down a bit, but, but told them what, what Jesus did. And a little kid who was new, thank God for the kids that are new. They sometimes have that fresh perspective. And he raised his hand and goes, uh, why are we calling this Good Friday? Because <laughs> all we were talking about was how much Jesus suffered. And they said, why is this Good Friday? We said, oh, I'm going to tell you why it's Good Friday, because here's what happened. He did that for us, and he didn't just stay in the ground. He rose from the grave. So it's good Friday and not sad Friday and not bad Friday. That's okay to be serious, but we understand it is a good thing. So when we say all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the reason we're happy about that is because we know what Jesus did for us. So have you ever taken the time to think about that verse in a different way? We know all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The reason we're happy is because Jesus took our sin, right? So if Jesus took our sin, how would that verse be different without the sin? So if all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, what happens if there wasn't that sin? You'd meet the glory of God. You'd experience the glory of God. You'd be a demonstration of the glory of God. You wouldn't come short, would you? What Jesus did for us was, do, was pay the debt we couldn't pay, was meet the mark we never could make. And we have to be able to read that verse and, and understand that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Jesus came to take that sin away so that I would meet something that I never could meet on my own. And here, the reason I want to tell you that is because we're going to talk about the glory of God in relation to what Jesus did. Here it says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. He made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. So if we're still wondering what he's talking about, he's talking about the original law that was given through Moses. And when he's talking about the letters engraved on stones, what's he talking about? He's talking about those original Ten Commandments. Thank God. I, I can look at the Ten Commandments. I don't get depressed about that. Why? Because I know this is God's standard. And, and you know what? It tells me a little bit about, about what he's like and his ways. And, and you know, it teaches me something about him. But thank God I am not under the law anymore. I look at those Ten Commandments, I want to live my life aligning with those commandments. But thank God, the way I do that is not just by looking at them and saying, I better try harder today. The way I do that is understanding that Jesus met the mark for me. And because he made me righteous, I can live righteously. He says here, who also made us adequate servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look, in, look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? Remember what I said about the book of Hebrews? It shows us how the old was good, but the new is so much better. I want you to think about this for a minute. He calls it the ministry of death. That's harsh, isn't it? Probably nobody would have got that excited back in the Old Testament if they had heard that it was called the ministry of death. Or that it would be called that later. 
In fact, when the law was first given, and, and it's hinted at here that the, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. When that first law was given to the Israelites, 3,000 of them rebelled and 3,000 were killed. What do you think happened on the day of, on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came? 3,000 were saved. It's kind of cool, isn't it? The law killed 3,000. Well, their rebellion killed them. But the law revealed that in them. The law put a standard, and they, they, they resisted it. They stood against it, so they paid the price for it. But thank God, when Peter got up on the day of Pentecost, I want you to remember his message. When he got up on the day of Pentecost, he looked out on a city that said, give us Barabbas. He looked out on a city some of the same type of people that he was ashamed to even admit he was with Jesus. He looked out on a city that more than any other city on the planet put Jesus to death. And he looked out at them and he said, I'm not going to mince words. You crucified the Lord of glory. But then he says he's offering to all of you forgiveness today. He's offering all of you a chance. He's offering all of you the, the opportunity to repent and be saved. How wonderful is this? They had all of those people in the crowd. If they were still living in an old covenant reality, they just killed the son of God. What do you think their punishment should be? What do you think the punishment for killing Jesus should have been? Yeah, it should have been like a violent death, don't you think? I mean, eye for an eye, two for two. People got stoned for adultery. What do you think you should get for killing the son of God? That's, that seems like death is too good, doesn't it? And yet the only thing they're offered is life, is salvation, an ushering in of the new covenant, an ushering in of a new deal. Those same people that crucified Jesus listened as Peter stood up there with boldness, preached the word of God, and beside him stood the other 11 apostles, side by side, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, and they said, this is the message we're preaching. Later on, Peter preached in a, in a similar message to another group. He said, repent and be baptized that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The justice that they were experiencing was not the justice they should have received in the old covenant. The justice they received was a God who sent his son and they crucified him violently and he came back to earth. I mean, he rose from the dead, he ascended on high and he gave his spirit. And the first thing that Holy Spirit did through the apostles, through the early church was say, I offer you life. I offer you salvation. I offer you forgiveness. I offer you something that you've never had before. How wonderful is that? Now look at this. It says that that first covenant, even though it may have been called a ministry of death, why was it a ministry of death? The Bible says the law is perfect because it came from God. It was perfect. What was imperfect? We were imperfect. We couldn't meet that standard. And so that very same standard that showed us what God was like showed us that we didn't meet the mark. And the Bible says that the wages of sin was death. So just knowing that standard brought death. Just knowing that, that there was that standard set before them and they couldn't meet it brought death. But even then, even in the old covenant, when Moses brought that law to them, when Moses brought those commandments to them, it says there was much glory when he came. 
So much so that the Israelites couldn't look at his face because it was shining with so much glory. He says, if that old covenant came with glory, how much more? He says, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? Now, this is exciting to me because I recognize that we're seeing exactly what we talked about earlier, that all sin came short of the glory of God. But something changed in us. Something changed when we received Jesus. He met a standard. He, he, he imputed his righteousness to us so that we didn't have to fall short of the glory of God, that we could be a part of the glory of God, that we could experience the glory of God in greater measure. Verse 9 says this, for if the ministry of condemnation, does everybody know what condemnation is? When you are sentenced to death for a crime that you committed, you are condemned to death. When you are sentenced to prison for a crime you committed, rightfully so, you are condemned to prison. But here it says, it, for the ministry of condemnation, I say condemned to prison, but normally when we say condemned, it means death. I mean, this is the same word that we get the word, and, and I'm going to say it in its proper sense, not in its vulgar sense. But this is the same way word that we get the word damn from, like when you damn something, to curse something. But if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. Abound in glory, which means there's more glory than you can handle in the ministry of righteousness. Now, what in the world is the ministry of righteousness? Because the Apostle Paul says we are servants of this new covenant. We're ministers of the new covenant. And that's what the word minister means. If you look in your uh, concordance, if you look it up in your Bible, often the word minister and servant are the same word. To minister does mean to serve. I've used the example before that when a waiter or a waitress comes to serve you at the table, they are ministering to you. It's cool to know that if you, I mean, the Bible, will, it'll say later in this very book that we are all ministers of reconciliation. We've been sent to minister to something, and that means that we've been given something to give to somebody else, to serve somebody else with, to minister to somebody else. So when he says the ministry of condemnation, he's talking about, you know, he's talking about the proclamation. He's talking about talking and speaking out what God's standards were. He's speaking out the law and showing them that they fell short of it. He says even then in the Old Testament, the ministry of condemnation had glory. But much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. What is the ministry of righteousness? This is the preaching of the gospel. Because the gospel says this, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, can we actually, can you hold your place? And we'll just quickly go to Romans chapter 10 because I, I think that'll shed some light on what we're reading. Thank God we're in a new covenant, amen? Thank God we're new covenant people. I mean, I didn't win a lottery to be born in this time. Well, I'm really thankful I, I was born in this time. I'm really thankful I was born on this side of the cross. I was really thankful that the Holy Spirit saw me and drew me. And I received this, the, Jesus, and, and I didn't do anything to deserve it. I wasn't any better than anybody else. I'm so thankful that I know Jesus. And we should all be thankful for that. 
Romans chapter 10 says this, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer for them, and them is his, those are his brothers that are still in the Jewish religion that haven't received Jesus. They're his Pharisee friends. They're his, his rabbinical school buddies. He says, my prayer for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? What does what say? The righteousness based in faith. It says this. The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we are preaching. What is faith? Faith reaches out and receives what God has freely given and what God has freely promised. You got born again by having faith in the grace of God. The grace of God was what he gave freely through Jesus Christ. What did you have to do? You had to have faith and receive that by faith. You had to trust the promises of God. He says this in verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. Let's stop there for a moment. How do we achieve the righteousness of God? How do we achieve it? By learning more and trying harder. There's nothing trying hard. Nothing wrong with learning. These are all parts of being a believer. But they're not the basis of your salvation and they're not the basis of your righteousness. The difference is you are not a cat trying to act like a dog. You're not a dog either, but let's say dog is the highest thing you could be. It's higher than a cat. We all can agree about that, can't we? I'm just kidding. Kim, sorry. You want your cat to act like a dog can dress up like a dog, can try harder, but it will always fall short of the mark of what it means to be a dog, right? <laughs> because it, at its heart, it really isn't. You can try harder, but you know your dog is just instinctively a dog, just, just is. And so your dog may sometimes do things that normal dogs don't do, or may, may not act like a dog, but at its heart, it is a dog, and as long as it knows it's a dog, it acts like a dog. We had a strange dog. I mean, our little dog, Bubba, was just a wonderful dog, but... Bubba was raised in a bubble at times. The bubble bubble. Bubble bubble. Can you say that three times fast? The bubba bubble. And uh, he wasn't around a lot of other dogs when he was a puppy. So there's some things that Bubba did that I didn't ever see any other dogs do. There's some things he didn't really, there was some dog-like things he did and some other things that I think he just thought he was one of us. One day we took him out to the Davidson's ranch and he discovered what a real dog was like. He said, this is fun. I like this. So we used to, he used to bark at the doorbell, and you know, kind of a high, not a high pitch. He wasn't like a chihuahua bark, but just a regular, you know, little dog bark. Well, he came back from hanging out with the big dogs. He, he had a hoo, hoo, hoo when the doorbell rang, and he just, 
You know, he tried to lift his leg when he went to the bathroom. It didn't really work, but he tried it. And, you know, he was a little bit more of a dog when he came back because he discovered, that's what I am. My goodness. There's been things I haven't got about my life. I didn't understand until I met another dog. I'm one of you. That's why it's so hard for me to walk on two feet. We tried to make him do that. You know, he's, mom would always teach him, praise the Lord, Bubba, praise the Lord. And he'd dance on two legs. But you know, he never did it right. <laughs> I could tell he was not doing it with all his heart, you know. He was doing it for a treat. And that's just the wrong motives. If any, are you, any of you are dancing before the Lord for a treat, that's the wrong motives. When he gets around a dog, he goes, oh, this is what I am. So the difference is, are you, uh, we were all sinners saved by grace, thank God. Are you still a sinner? Or has something changed in you? The Bible says we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It, the Bible says this. So while we know that none of our righteousness is worth anything, and anything good comes from him, and without him, apart from him, we can do nothing. We know that we no longer are sinful people trying to attain some sort of righteousness, but we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, and so now we can walk righteously because that's who we are, as opposed to being a sinner and just trying to act righteous. Here's what it says, the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness. The way you achieve the righteousness of God was believing. And with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now this is basic gospel 101, isn't it? But it's something we need to be reminded of. We need to understand the ministry of righteousness. We all carry the ministry of righteousness. Here's how you minister righteousness. Not only do you demonstrate it, but you minister the, the message of the gospel, which is the power of God. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to all who believe, leading to salvation. The gospel is so good. Sometimes we think it's so hard to preach the gospel. It's hard to be a messenger of the gospel. Maybe you forgot what the gospel is then. Because when you realize how good the gospel is, it is literally in the Bible good news. When you realize that the message of the gospel is that you did not meet God's mark, but Jesus did something for you. He died, bore your sin, shed his precious blood, and that blood served as a, as, as a pledge for you. That blood covered, not just covered your sin, but took it away. And then he rose again. And when he rose, we rose with him. That, that gospel does not minister condemnation to people. It ministers life to people. And if the people around you that don't know Jesus, if you've noticed, they don't need a little bit more condemnation. They need life. And they don't need life in a fake way. They're there. You're okay. You're doing fine. Because what did we read a, few, a couple weeks ago? He says, we are the fragrance of Christ to God. We are the aroma of life. But to those that are perishing, it's the aroma of death. In other words, being around us reminds believers that they were saved. Being around us reminds unbelievers that they're dying and they need a Savior. You don't want your friends to not notice that they need a Savior. 
But at the same time, the message of the gospel is not the message of condemnation. It's the message of life, which is the wages of sin is death, and we've all sinned. But thank God Jesus did something that you couldn't do. I want you to read the next verse in 2 Corinthians 3, where we left off. In fact, I'll read that again in verse 9. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. This new covenant has way more glory. Why? Because it's not dependent on a sinful people. It's not dependent on your flaws and your limitations. And you need to realize this, and this needs to be a foundation for your life. What God does through you. Now, we know the scripture says, be a vessel of honor. Keep yourself as a, as a vessel of honor, not of dishonor. Talks about those that, that um, insult the spirit of grace. It talks about those that rebel. But I'm talking to you as believers that I believe love the Lord, and, and, and with your heart, you're following him. We need to understand that the blessing of God that we're walking in right now is not a result of our good stuff. It's not even a result of our obedience by itself. The blessing of life that we're walking in right now is a result of the work of Jesus Christ. If you need proof of that, look at 2 Peter 1 and, and look about how he has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him says, for if the ministry of condemnation is glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. That is so cool. That means that as good as the old covenant was, even though it had glory, the new covenant is so much better that it makes the other thing look like it had no glory at all. It, the glory in the new covenant surpasses it so much more. And this is cool because this, we don't have to keep trying to go back and keep keeping one foot in the old and one foot in the new. I mean, thank God for the old covenant, but it is revealed through the new covenant now. Now that we know Jesus, we understand the old covenant in a different way, and we're not under that covenant. You can learn, thank God, from the old covenant. You can see Jesus all through that Old Testament. You can see God's hand all through it. You should be very studied in the Old Testament, but you're not under that testament. And here's the thing, it had glory, but when compared to what you have now, it has no glory because of how much more glory this new covenant has, how much better this covenant is. Why would you ever want to go back? He says this, for if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Now, what are we talking about when we talk about glory? That's a, that's, that's a tricky thing, isn't it? When we talk about giving glory to God, well, that's giving him praise, giving him credit, talking about what he's done. But when we're talking about this kind of glory, what are we talking about? The glory of God is, could be defined as the favor of God, the goodness of God, the presence of God, everything that comes with his presence. When God said to Moses, I'm going to show you my glory, or when Moses, I'm sorry, when Moses said to God, show me your glory, what did God say to him? I will let my goodness pass before you. And in fact, Moses couldn't even look directly on God. What did he do? What did God do for him? 
He said, if you look at me, you won't live, you'll die. So here's what I'll do. I will put you behind in the cleft of the rock and I will pass, I'll let my goodness pass before you and you'll get to see the train of what follows. You'll get to see the glory that, that I leave behind as I walk. But Moses couldn't look at him directly. Couldn't look at his face. He could merely look at the backside of God as he went and even that caused his face to shine. When we think about the glory of God, you've got to understand this is the remaining and life-changing presence of God. This is the life-changing anointing of God. This is the favor of God. This is the goodness of God. This is his face toward you. In fact, later on in this same book, it's going to say, it's going to, it's going to talk about the light shining out of the darkness into our hearts to show the glory of God in the face of Christ. And I can't wait to talk to you about that. So come back in a few weeks. But it'll take you years to, under, to fully grasp what it means to understand the glory of God. But you know it when you see it, don't you? You know it's you when you experience it. And it's so wonderful to know that though we all sin and fell short of that glory, we no longer have to be apart from the glory of God. For that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. See, Moses, his face was shining so much that the Israelites couldn't even look at it. But then Moses put a veil over his face. We're about to read about it. He put a veil over his face because he didn't want them to see that it was fading. And why was it fading, guys? Because Moses was imperfect, as good as he was. He was the best of the bunch. I mean, if anybody saw the glory of God, it was Moses, but even he was not up to that standard. And so that glory was fading, and he's ashamed of it. He covered it with a veil so they wouldn't see it fading. But it says, if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Do you understand that if we live a reality and understanding what our covenant with God is, you know he says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You are never away from the presence of God. That his presence in your life is not dependent on you, but on his covenant. When David said, oh Lord, don't take your spirit from me. He was sincere in that cry, but he was in the old covenant. In the new covenant, he says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And he says, I've given you my spirit as a pledge, and he will never leave you. Sometimes we wish the spirit would leave us for a bit, hey? <laughs> Can you leave for a minute? I want to watch this movie. Can you leave for a minute? I want to argue with this person. <laughs> but he doesn't. If you're living a life of desperation where you're saying, and I'm not talking about good, maybe the desperation that some people use when they say they're hungry or expectant for God. I'm talking about the desperation in the sense that it's despair. Despair means without hope. If you're living this reality where you're trying to chase God and you feel like he's running away from you, I understand there's a difference between that omnipresence of God and the manifest presence of God where you have set everything else aside and you're just soaking in that presence of God. I understand the difference. Believe me, I do. But if you're living a reality where you're always wondering if God, if you did just one more thing that ticked God off and 
now you got to plead with him to come back. You're living in the wrong covenant. Because that covenant was a covenant that fades and was temporary. This covenant is one that remains. And the old covenant was always meant to be a temporary covenant. The new covenant is permanent. Permanent through Jesus Christ. And it has glory. It abounds in glory. In verse 12, therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. Isn't that awesome? We're not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened for until that very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Until this very day, sorry. At the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. Think about that. That veil is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. They see it. They don't see it in the light of the new. They don't see it in the light of Christ. They still see it like the Israelites saw it when it was first given to them. They see their own shortcomings separating them from God. They see their own shortcomings separated from his glory, separating them from his presence. But he says that veil is lifted in Christ. And we look with unveiled faces, it says this. For whenever a, turn, a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Isn't that awesome? Whenever a person turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. Whatever separated you from the glory of God is gone. Whatever separated you from understanding what he said is gone. Whatever separated you that for that fear of maybe he'll, maybe he'll stay, maybe he won't, it's gone. That, that, that looking at the Bible and not getting it, looking at the Old Testament and not understanding it, it's gone. Now you see it for what it is. Jesus gave light to the darkness. He shone light in the dark places. And now we understood what they could couldn't understand that all those things, as Peter says, all those things were for our benefit. As it says in Colossians, all these things were merely types and shadows, but the substance belongs to Christ. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Verse 17. Now where the now the Spirit, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is. There is liberty. What does that mean? Where God's spirit is, there's freedom. Now, we use this a lot to talk about freedom, like being able to lift your hands, being able to dance, that kind of freedom. And that's good, but that's not what it's talking about here. That's still good. Praise the Lord, I agree. But what it's talking about here is that freedom from bondage, that freedom from the law, that freedom from that condemnation, that freedom from that, from those chains that bound you, it says where the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is life, there is refreshing, there is glory. In verse 18, he says this, but we all with unveiled face, man, you get to see what Moses never could. Wow. I love the songs and the things that say, show me your glory like Moses saw. I love that. But can I tell you, don't stop there. Because what Moses saw is nothing compared to what you can see. Moses only saw the backside of God. 
we with unveiled faces can look into the face of God, can walk into the throne room of grace, can look and spend time in the presence of God without worrying that we're going to be fried like a crispy critter. We can live in the presence of God. Moses had it good, but you got it better. David had it good, but you've got it better. John the Baptist had it good, but you have it better. Jesus said that. He said, up until this day, there's never been a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he says, everyone, even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. How can you say that? John was righteous. John was good. John was a great preacher. He loved the Lord. He was obedient to the Lord. So obedient that when his daddy said, you're going to be raised in the wilderness, you're going to be the voice crying in the wilderness. When his parents died, he moved to the wilderness. And he just started eating locusts and honey because that's what was there. And he started, you know, wearing freshly carved animal skins. And he was the outcast of society. And yet he did it gladly because he was a prophet of God. So how can we say that you're better than John the Baptist? Because even it says the, the least of the kingdom is better than John the Baptist. Do you know everybody in this room is more righteous than John the Baptist was? God looks at you with more favor than John the Baptist. Do you understand that? So how is that? How does that work? Because I'm not meeting John the Baptist, Mark. He set a pretty high standard. But you're not meeting John the Baptist, Mark. Jesus met the perfect Mark. And he gave his gift of righteousness to you. It is not earned righteousness. It's gift righteousness. It's imputed to you by the blood of Jesus. Now, because we've received that righteousness, oh, yes, I live righteously. I forsake sin. I turn towards him. I follow him. I follow his commandments. I follow his ways. I know that. How can I say I abide in his love and yet disobey his commandments? But I understand that that's not what makes me righteous. The righteousness came first. So which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which came first, your work or your righteousness? Your righteousness came first. And the work was a fruit of that righteousness. And there's much glory in that. Why aren't we experiencing that kind of glory in our day-to-day -day lives? I think perhaps we don't know what we have. I, I think perhaps we, we got to come to the realization of what's in front of you and what you've been offered and what you can have if you just go a little deeper because of what Jesus did. With unveiled faces, behold is, beholding is in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Whoa. I don't know if you caught that little phrase. I said it slow. But let me say it again. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. What do you see when you look in a mirror? Do I look in the mirror and I see Josh? If I do, that's going to freak me out. <laughs> He's stalking me. He's, <laughs> He's a good hunter. He could. I look at the mirror, I see who I am. He didn't say looking through the window, see the glory of God. He didn't say looking in a picture frame, see the glory of God. He says, as in a mirror, beholding the glory of God. 
which if you're looking in a mirror and you're seeing the glory of God, what do you think you are? What do you think's all over you? Who do you think you are? Because if I'm looking in the mirror and I see the glory of God, that says something about me. The mirror doesn't tell me about you. It tells me about me. And I, the only reason I can see that when I look in the mirror is because I know what Jesus did for me. And now my life is hidden in him. And it's no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. He does not say you're looking in a book and seeing the glory of God. He doesn't say you're looking far away and seeing the glory of God. He says, as in a mirror, beholding the glory of God, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory <laughs> into the same image from glory to glory by looking in the mirror we talked about this on Sunday James said the guy who looks into the word hears it and doesn't do it it's like a man who's looked in the mirror and immediately walks away and forgets who he is but as you look into the mirror of his word, as you look into the mirror of his spirit and you find out who he is, you find out who you are and you're being transformed. What does that mean? That means that you're always going to go higher. You're not at your final state. You will be getting better. The work's been done. The construction's done, but you're still his own in progress, and I'm being transformed from glory to glory, which is cool because it doesn't say I'm being transformed from half glory to full glory. I'm being transformed from kind of okay to a little bit better to someday glorious. I am being transformed, and my starting point is glory, and I'm moving on to more glory, and I'm moving on to more glory because I realize who Jesus is in me, and I'm being transformed to look like him not look like anybody else but look like him gosh this is good thank God for this he says this unveiled faces we behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord we're being transformed in the same image from image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit see there's the force in your life that's changing you you're not chasing the spirit you're not begging for the spirit you've been given the spirit and that spirit is life and it's changing you and it's changing you and it's changing you the next verse and we won't go further than that but the next verse says therefore since we have this ministry as we receive mercy we do not lose heart Thank God. I'll just be honest with you right now. Many of us have gone through stages in life where we have felt supremely unworthy and unfitting for the calling we've been given. We feel like we have just fallen way too short. We have missed the standard. We've missed the mark that God must be embarrassed and, and we should just get, get going. Some of us feel that if we only were a little bit more like that person or did a little bit more of this, that perhaps someday we'd experience the glory of God. But I want you to know it's something that's been promised to you and that you have been part of a new covenant which, has, uh, which is abounding in glory. It's got more glory than you've ever seen, more glory than you're ever used to, 
The presence of God is not a far off thing. It's available to us through Jesus Christ. None of us are good enough, but through Jesus, all of us are. Get that revelation in you. I know it's a simple one. I know I'm saying some things many of you have believed for 30 years. I may not be telling you anything you haven't heard, but do you need to be reminded of this? Because I know I do. When I look at his word, I see something that does not look like my own image of me, which is good because remember James said, just like I just quoted, when you hear the word and you don't do it, it's like somebody that looks in the mirror, that walks away and forgets who they are. So can I tell you, when you walk out there and you, you're not doing the word you know, you're not acting like who you are, you're not following Jesus as he is, you're not being yourself when you're doing that. You forgot who you are. You see, if I could still call you a sinner, then that statement wouldn't be true. I'd say, you're a sinner. As soon as you walk away, you just go back to your old sinful ways. No, here's what it is. You're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. When you look at the word, you say, that's who I am. I'm going to be like that. That's who I am. I can be like that. I am like that. But when you just hear it and you don't do it, you walk away and you forget who you are. Look in the mirror. Take a good look at who you really are. We look at the glory of God as one looking into a mirror. As we look into the mirror of the glory of God, we are transformed from glory to glory. Thank God he lifted the veil from our eyes. Some of you say, I still feel like I have a veil. I'm trying to get this. I'm trying to understand this. It's all a fuzz. Maybe it's my translation. I don't know. But can I tell you, the spirit of God inside you is able to lead you and guide you in all truth. The Bible says the anointing abide with, abiding within you is able to teach you all things. If you don't get it, like I said on Sunday, if you don't feel like you get it, you ask the Holy Spirit to reveal this to you. He's your teacher. He's your guide. Man, it is a wonder to know I'm not separated from his glory anymore. I can, I can experience it. I can live in it. I can let it change me. I wonder if we could all call ourselves ministers of righteousness. Not ministers of condemnation, but ministers of righteousness. Remember, ministry of the Spirit brings life. Wouldn't you love to bring life wherever you went? Wouldn't you want to experience life wherever you went? If you're picking up the Bible and you're feeling condemned, you're reading it wrong. Now, there are many times I pick up the Bible and I go, I'm doing it wrong. And the Bible corrects me. And his word disciplines me. Discipline and condemnation are not the same thing. He disciplines those whom he loves. If you hear the word say, stop doing it, go the other way, oh, you're condemning me, I don't like that. You're not being condemned, you're being corrected. Thank God for it. What's he doing? He's transforming you into his image. You should feel a poke every now and then saying, put this down and pick this up. That's good. Stop walking into that building. Turn around. Go the other way. Shut your mouth before you say something you'll regret. That's a good thing. That's him transforming you. Don't reject that and say, ah, that's condemnation. Condemnation says you're guilty, you're wrong, you're sinful, and you're going to pay for it. 
Condemnation is a ministry of death in your life. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7, and we'll get there, but it says this. It says that the sorrow, according to the will of God, produces a repentance which leads to salvation without regret, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You've got to know the difference. We better stop before we'll be here for a little too long. 